0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 13. (laughs) For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, Can you join us uh, in prayer before Todd starts this morning? Our De Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible grace and patience with us. We thank you for the writings of Paul. We thank you for his example of someone who knew they had it all figured out that every Christian was to be killed. And you met him, and you changed him. And he responded to you, and you did a miracle in his life, and he knew the mystery of grace and forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit, the most unlikely of candidates. Father, forgive us our arrogance, as we all are like Paul. We think we know, we seek to speak, we make our decisions, and then we wait for you to do it. Father, forgive us our arrogance. Lord, let us respond to you, to the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Let us see both believers and especially non, those that we may not understand that what is available to us is available to them, that we are to respond to your leading rather than deciding that we know what it's to be. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the, the mystery that you have made known to us. Thank you, Father, that your time is your time. Give us, uh, through your Holy Spirit, the grace to be patient to recognize that you were in control. And for these words this morning, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank
1: you. Uh, Bart Vanderland has asked to, to come up and share for us just um, for a moment a um, little bit of what James was talking about, but also ways that we can pray for him and those whom he loves. Bart.
2: Thanks. I hadn't uh, planned on doing this, but uh, James threw it out there. So rather than a- answer questions to many people, I just want to thank God for uh, something that's happened in my life, and praise Him for it. You know, one of the most uh, painful things we can live through is broken relationships, especially in our family. I may fall apart a bit here, but such has been the case with my sister for the past eight or nine years since my mother died, and that's been an extremely difficult time, and I've, I've prayed and waited patiently for our relationship to be restored, which it seems now has been, as I met with her yesterday, and it was good. I'm really grateful for that. Uh, that's about it for that. The other thing that's really heavy on my heart is a friend of mine, who some of you might know, David Foster, who is the original um, um, the founder of the Harvest Project, who has led countless people to the Lord and has, in recent years, for whatever reason, suffered all kinds of physical Problems and uh, emotional problems, poverty, and is living a really difficult existence. And um, he's had to move from place to place to place, and that's happening again the end of this month. And if anybody knows of any place where a guy who does nothing but try and pray for people and help them and has so many uh, health problems, it's just really a, a big concern in my heart. I figure if I don't say something to somebody who might know you know what's the harm in trying pray for david foster if you want to know any more if you want to help financially or otherwise or if you know where where there might be a place he could live please come and talk to me thank you
1: let's pray now for david and and also praise for this reconciliation hello to heather beveridge also great to see you here this morning let's pray so father we come before you right now and bart clearly knows more than most or all of us do here for the concerns for his friend David. And we would ask, Heavenly Father, for your guidance, that you would go ahead in this situation. We pray against despair and darkness. We pray against um, any work of the evil one that would uh, seek to diminish life. And we pray for your favor, that a, a place would be found and uh, that he would be healed from these ailments that he faces and that he would be able to continue in the work of witnessing to your love and so we thank you heavenly father uh we pray also over the situation with bart and his sister um what a beautiful picture even of some of the things that we'll speak about this morning uh not that the minister needs to kind of make them about what the sermon's about but uh this picture of reconciliation and redemption. And we believe that, Lord Jesus Christ, in you there is full and total and complete redemption. Uh, Much of it we will know in this lifetime. Some we will not. But we want to, as a community, say thank you on Bart's behalf for this restored relationship, and we pray for its blessing. We thank you, Heavenly Father. You are so good to us and to all. We pray that you would continue to show us how to bear witness to your unconditional love for all in Christ Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' own name. Amen. Thanks, Bart, so much. So you're on a hike. So those of you who are unable to hike or haven't gone, whoops, turn my flashlight on my mistake. Or haven't gone hiking for some time, you can imagine this. Well, you all have to imagine it because none of us are hiking right now. But uh I think most of us can, can enter into this kind of metaphor. We're heading up a mountain. And uh, for me, of course, I picture it riding my bike up. Like, you can't do it at this time of year because it's too snowy. But once the snow clears a little bit, you then, then cyclists start. Most cyclists don't do this often. I don't do it often. Kim Whaley once rode up um, Seymour in January. Um, it was a year that wasn't, like, cold like this. But you can ride up the mountains. It's a good place to ride your bike in, in this part of the world because you get these big hills. And so for me, I think of it riding. I think of riding up Seymour. So you can think of hiking. But you've got a picture somewhere not so much like this picture we've given as a metaphor for the book of Ephesians. But remember, we're on, uh, we're on a climb here in Ephesians. And next week, it's so appropriate. We didn't, we didn't plan it this way. But Valentine's is coming up before next Sunday, Right and we are going to reach this peak which is talking about the love of God so right now you're like you know past halfway up let's say two-thirds of the way up you still haven't had any clearing really but I know on Seymour when you're riding up or when you're driving up and you get towards one of those switchbacks near the top um, maybe only two-thirds of the way up and then you can see a clearing And so, But it's not the whole expanse. It's not like a 360 view or anything like that or even close to it. It's just like a little window through the trees that all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm up pretty high. And you get a sense of what it's going to look like when you reach the peak. But of course, those of you who've done any hiking to these beautiful vistas know that those window views that you get on the way up, though they are remarkable, they don't compare at all to the peak. And sometimes you don't quite want to look. Because if you look, you feel like it might spoil the real view when you get to the top. If you were to look at that point and have something of a revelation, you might do something wrong. You might kind of say, oh, I know just what it's going to look like then, and I know kind of the whole scene Today we reach a clearing on our way up. We're not yet at the top. Today there is the description that the mystery, I'm going to put it back here so you're not reading too much. There is a description that the mystery is revealed. But the real uh, talk of that mystery is coming next week. Now there's that window theologically. And here is the mystery. So this is, this is that sense of looking through that view window and saying okay i think i'm going to get it now and here's the mystery god's love is bigger than you ever ever thought but it's just that window you're seeing god's love is bigger than you ever ever thought and in this context in the book of ephesians the description is that People thought that God's love was just for this certain group of people, that they were God's people. And this whole text, and in some ways this whole letter, this book, is written to say, no, 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 God's love is for these others as well. But, of course, these others in that frame of the day, which was, they thought it was just for the Jewish people, but it was for these others as well, the Gentiles, which effectively means it actually is for all. God's love is bigger than you can imagine. So if I were to ask you, and I've used this word a few times on purpose through this series, if I were to ask you, what is the eschatological hope of the book of Ephesians? You should know that. What is the eschatological hope of the book of Ephesians? And you would say, who cares? Doesn't mean much for my life, except it does. If your faith matters to you. Because the eschatological hope of Ephesians, that's the way of saying, What's the hope of where everything is headed? We battle with the breakdown of our bodies. We battle with aging. And some of you have experienced the difficulties that come. You have this sense in life that, well, I'll just keep going. And then somewhere along the line, you wake up to the realization, oh no, things seem to be going the other way now. Where does it end? Where's the completion? Is it just with your death? Is it with everything kind of ending up and ceasing to be. That's the default understanding in our world, that this will all be gone, which is true. But when we think of this all being gone, buildings breaking down, bodies breaking down, churches existing and ceasing to exist, people who were here before us, you can get this looking at old photos sometimes, right? You're alive right now looking at an old photo of people who are long since gone from this earth. And they were just as they had thoughts like you do, and one day will be gone. So is that the end? That's the default understanding in our world. And so live while you can. The eschatological frame of the book of Ephesians and the eschatological hope is that, no, things are not headed into nothing. Things are headed into Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns forever and ever. That's the hope so that we walk around as Christians who have given our lives to Jesus Christ by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we walk around with a different sense of where things are headed, even as our lives and bodies and buildings and whatever else break down. That's the eschatological hope of the book of Ephesians. Eschatology meaning how things end. It's chapter 1 and verse 10. Here's the eschatological statement, okay? All things will be brought together in him. Over and over and over again in Scripture, this this description is placed before us, that all things will be brought together in him. He is before all things. He was before creation. He is after all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, the end of all things is not... Primarily to do with you and even your eternal destiny. The end of all things is to do with Jesus Christ and how in Him is your eternal destiny, if you trust in Him. All things will be brought together in Him to unite all things in Him. Chapter 1, verse 10. Things in heaven and things on earth. It's like we're told all things, but then we don't really believe the word all. So then Paul, writing the letter, says, All things are going to come together in him. When I say all, I mean all things in heaven and all things on earth, which encompasses everything. All things are under his feet. This is the power at work in those who believe. In other words, when you give your life to Christ, when you trust in this hope, when you trust in what he's done for you and for all others, That same power that is at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at work in you. What's it at work in you for? So you can have a nice house and all these blessings and all these wonderful things. Not really. You might get those things. You might have those things. But this power is at work in you so that others could see the same hope. That's it. You long for people in your lives to know the love of Jesus Christ. You pray that they would know the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have to other people. So, this power is at work in those who believe, those who have seen this, and this is salvation. Saved from ourselves, from thinking that we are the end of things, saved from our sin. And in the end, all things will be under his feet. And he is above all things. And the fullness of him fills all in all. Chapter 2. There is this important distinction between those who believe and those who don't. It's different sometimes than we understand the distinction or has been taught. You were dead and you have been made alive. By God's love in Christ. This is not of your own doing. In other words, God loved you so much that though you were dead, He made you alive. He loves everybody with that same kind of love. So what's the difference between you and them? Well, the difference is by the Holy Spirit, we would say, you've seen this. You've given your life and your will to this. And then, toward the end of chapter 2, you are one then with others, with those who also believe. God has broken down that wall, though, between, in this case, Jew and Gentile. But God is in the wall-breaking business. And you now together... And I don't want to say that a non-Christian is a Christian. I'm not saying that. But you now together, those of you who believe... You are being built into a holy temple. But it's not for your own good, it's for the good of the whole world. Your salvation is for others. So that we are, the Bible uses words like this the first fruits, the first who see this, so that others might see. All under this window picture on that hike, that God's love is bigger than we could imagine. And in Christ, all things are being united. Now, we'll get a little bit to the description of this in a few minutes, but I'm okay with not understanding what that all means. All things will be united in Christ. And you should be okay with that too. It's a big, big promise. But now your thoughts, your interactions with others, your decisions will be affected by how you think things will end. So if you think things end by just going into nothing, then I guess the best thing to do is live it up while you can. So to some people, that would mean living for self as much as you can. Might as well experience as much as I can, you know, get as much as I can, maybe pass something along to kids if you have them, right, while you're alive. It's not only that. People can be really good in what they want, too. They can think, well, while I'm alive, I better make a difference in the world and help those who are in need. You don't have to have Christian faith or even any kind of religious faith to want to help others. But sometimes it can be bounded by this sense of, well, I guess that's all there is. Christian faith, what's the guiding thing? So now you got to stay with me a little bit and um, there shouldn't be one and two here. There shouldn't be any numbers. I I don't know why I put those there. Uh, I think for most of us, particularly in the evangelical church growing up, kind of the, you know, pray the prayer, accept Jesus, and that kind of church growing up, we have been guided by the ends of things that we think that the end of things is either heaven or hell, right? And so even sometimes we've turned our Lord Jesus Christ into a means rather than an end. Do you know what I mean by that? He becomes a means for me to get to heaven rather than an end that I'm with Jesus forever. There's a difference. So Jesus came, became human, lived his life, taught, died on a cross so that I could be saved from my sins. This is all true. But if it's a means to an end, I don't really need him anymore once I've accepted his salvation and his love because now I'm forgiven and I get to go to heaven. And now, none of you could explain, I couldn't either, so it's okay, could explain either one of these two things really well and say, I fully understand these. Either heaven and hell or all things are united in him. But for much of my Christian understanding, I wrestled a little bit with the thought that, well, if it's just heaven and hell, be honest here, if it's just heaven and hell and most people go to hell, it's kind of a failure, isn't it? Now, I don't know, most of you would be a little bit more, um, maybe a little less bold than if you had, you know, a number of non-Christian people or then. then You're a little less bold than to think that you get to decide who's in and who's out, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So you've got your category. Well, if you accepted Jesus or not, if you haven't, then you're not in. And so let's go down the line. And if our friends came in here who don't believe this faith, we'd go, nope, heaven, yes, heaven, yes, hell, uh, nope, you're hell, you're hell. I mean, most of us wouldn't want to do that, right? What it means is that while this has been part of our understanding, and in many ways, helpfully so, We're not really wholly committed that this is the description of how things finally end. I don't understand fully heaven and hell. And by the way, so you can be free from this, the Bible, especially with hell, but with both, with heaven and hell, doesn't give anything that is really, really, really a full, clear description There's lots of different words for what we've interpreted as hell. The Old Testament has a totally different understanding than the new. Makes sense, right? And even heaven, if any of you can come up here right now and describe just what heaven is, it would be interesting, but it would be a lot wrong. As my description would be. But there is that, and there's the truth of that, that scripture speaks of these things. And we would be wrong, and I would be wrong, to say that there aren't things like judgment And that evil is not real. Although the word real is a bit problematic for evil, but evil is not actual present in this world. We can see evil in this world. And so we must trust God that in the end he will make these judgments, and I do. So I want to kind of put at ease, I don't know that I'll fully do it, those who think, well, Todd's giving up on this frame altogether. I'm not. What I'm saying is I want to leave heaven and hell to God. Lord God, I don't understand this separation. Who's in, who's out. But I trust in Jesus Christ before all things and after all things. So then the second frame comes into play. That all things would be united in him. I'm asking you, and this, talk about vision and direction, These kinds of shifts are bigger and more important than, you know, what programs are we going to do. These are theological steps. The church has not ceased to, work, to to keep moving theologically. You don't believe exactly like people believed 150 years ago. Do you know that? But so often we think, well, now it stops. Now we've got it. And we just need all those people out there to understand what we understand already. And when we're talking about vision and direction, I would argue that in some ways the key piece is, Lord God, would you reveal yourself to us in such a way that we are bold enough to take these theological steps, that our witness to Jesus Christ in this world is renewed, reinvigorated. And I think there's something in this. While we have this understanding of heaven and hell, which can be helpful and has good things about it and definitely bad things about it that we don't all have to go into, There's another one that wasn't as emphasized in my upbringing, but is just as present, I would argue more present, in Scripture. And that is, and please understand, right away you go, is he saying that everything is good in the end or everything is... I I don't really know, but I know that Scripture says this. That in the end, all things will be united and brought together in him. So what do you do with that? God's love is bigger than than we can imagine. And what I'm saying is, let that bigger frame be your guide. I am not asking you to say that everything is the same, Jesus and non-Jesus. I am making an entirely Christian statement in saying that all things are brought together in Him, Jesus Christ, by His incarnation and work on the cross. This is the work of Jesus. This is not, well, you can believe that or that or that or that. Not saying that, not even one iota. That Christian faith will declare that all things will be brought together in him. So we have these glimpses then of redemption, even relational redemption and reconciliation. That's a mark of the coming together that happens a thousandfold, ten thousandfold in Jesus Christ. That's my faith. That's my faith. So when I meet a non-Christian, what am I driven by? I'm driven by a sense of wanting them to know the compelling hope that is in Jesus Christ. And then I ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to me, what does it mean? And I just get glimpses, right? That all things are brought together in Christ Jesus. And then this happens. Even in prayer, even as a spiritual thing, I feel more included with them rather than separated from them, What we have in common is that God loves us both the same. Paul is writing these th- things from jail. He's writing these lofty theological statements about all things while he is suffering, imprisoned, in many ways imprisoned for that faith. And he says, I want to tell you, about a hope that I have. You're feeling sorry for me because I'm in jail. But here I'm feeling hopeful because I see that what Jesus Christ is doing, he's doing over the whole earth and over all of history. I read a story this week about a woman who set out to travel around the world for two years, a few years ago. And she wrote it as, like in the Huffington Post or something, she wrote it as this was going to be like my journey of self-discovery. I'm going to go find myself, that type of thing. And she got to her first destination, which was Thailand, and she didn't have much money, and she stole a scarf, but a quite expensive, beautiful scarf from a local vendor at some market, right? And she was caught. She wound up being in jail for over a year and a half in Thailand. That was the whole of her journey and what she wrote though was that she discovered so much more in being in that place and being with these it was a women's prison in thailand but many of the people she was with had addictions and difficulties and struggles and all kinds of things the poverty that was there the injustice all of that and so she spoke like i discovered these things in jail that i never could have discovered on my journey paul's not saying i'm in jail and oh, jail has taught me this wonderful thing. What he's saying is, here I am imprisoned, but the things that I really knew were true before I was imprisoned, now now that I'm suffering, now that I see that I'm the victim of some kind of injustice, now I see that those things that I knew were true before, I see the fullness of the truth of them. That's why he can write like this. So he's saying, for you... If you could see that this love of Jesus Christ is so pervasive, it would change your life too. The way he puts it, I've been made a minister of this gospel and the mystery has been revealed to me. It's been revealed. He did not figure it out. He did not, as Anne prayed, he was done with the figuring out part of his life. The figuring out part of his life was when he was called Saul and he was killing Christians Now he's saying, this has been revealed to me. I've received it. And I've been made a minister of it. And my life now is to be an apostle for this message in the world. A message to all, to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. This was one of St. Augustine's favorite verses. Saying that, what do you have that you haven't received? Anything true or spiritual, good, lasting, eternal in this world? You have received. So if you've received it, then how can you boast? That's the first thing. But secondly, this one is, we might not boast that much, but in our religious understanding, we sometimes do the second thing. If you've received it, then how on earth can you exclude others? You didn't do anything to get it. It was given now this is going to bring up some challenges for how we come to faith what our part is because we have a part we receive we receive we respond we acknowledge right but even that acknowledgement of what god has done for me is not the thing that makes that most effective if if i say that it's what i have done that has made my salvation real then who's the key agent in my salvation me So somehow this remains mystery. But I am called to respond, to receive, to acknowledge. And when that happens, then I can know the power of the Holy Spirit in my life in such a way that I can see this. So we can gather for this little memorial funeral we had here yesterday, which was terribly sad. It was for Caroline who came here. Caroline Basic, who came here a few times. Most recent time was a few weeks before Christmas. Sat up here. New Caroline Liggett um, and some others at the church had, uh, years ago, had children in the preschool here. And Caroline Basic has had, this is known, she would speak about it, has had struggles with addiction through her life. And then in between Christmas and New Year's, she took her life. We thought she was doing better. And her boyfriend Daniel has been here a number of times. He's coming to Alpha. Alpha. And he wanted to arrange this service because there was no kind of... It was for friends and others who might not go to the smaller official family service. So in that, you get a number of people from her work. She worked at Bed Bath & Beyond most recently and other places. And in this place, we declare the love of Jesus Christ. But I am struck there by how this love is for all. And you can feel even in the midst of tragedy, I'm pointing here because her picture was here, even in the midst and the face of tragedy, why do I have hope when I gather to mourn somebody who took their own life? Because I believe that in the end all things are united in Christ. And no, I don't fully comprehend what that means. And no, I'm not throwing out heaven and hell. It's just that I'm letting the first one guide my hope. You can see it in Scripture. You can see it in the work, words, ministry, and death and resurrection of our Lord. It used to be that all Israel will be saved. Paul expands that to all, including the Gentiles. You know... Jesus Christ accused so often, one incident, one time, he's accused of this, is in Luke 15. What was one of the major accusations against him? He welcomes sinners and eats with them. He's with people who are outside. He provides bread, Matthew 15, the feeding of these thousands, and all ate and were filled. The parable of the great banquet, the story, which is an eschatological story. What's the great banquet? What's the great banquet? The great banquet is the end of all things the wedding supper of the lamb and who's gathered all those who would respond all who all whom they found both good and bad matthew 22 and he humbles all and all who would humble themselves will be exalted and all who exalt themselves will be humbled matthew 23 matthew 24 his message as a testimony to all nations mark 11 you know the story of jesus uh, being upset that people are being kept from worship because they needed particular rituals or things to happen. He overturns the tables and he says, this, my house, will be a house of prayer for all nations. And then these two overarching calls, words, comfort, come to me, all, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul." John 12.32 This is what your Lord said. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The mystery is revealed. Verse 6 of our text. The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. That the promise is bigger and for more than we could ever imagine. Verse 7. I've been made a minister of this Gospel. By God's grace, though I am the least... I am here to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. To bring light, verse 9, to bring light for everyone. Even to the heavenly places. In other words, it's his way of saying this light is for everyone and then he goes back up to the heavens, right? Nothing is excluded. All things are united in him. This is the mystery. The mystery is that salvation is the point of creation. Salvation is the point of creation. God did not create us to be apart from Him. Right back to creation. God did not will to be God without us. And sin and fallenness were never a match for God right from the start. In Christ, even before the beginning. All things. And so we say... Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Can you imagine that there would be people in this world who hear those words as a threat? It makes sense in a way, because you could say, well, no, he doesn't, I guess. Then you're countering. For me, the, the way through this, because when I hear Jesus saves, I, I know that can be there historically, that sense of that's coming across as an attack, not something that's helpful. Jesus saves, and if you don't believe, then he doesn't save you. For me, Jesus saves is one of the best statements, maybe the best statement ever made. What I wonder is, how do we so quickly move from Jesus saves to, to what? Who is saved? Can you stop that second part? We need to declare that Jesus Christ saves, and by his Holy Spirit, God will call people into this life. He does indeed save. A Christian is not, sorry, that quote was cut off. It's only the last couple of words at the end. A Christian is not saved in order to be plucked out of the damned rabble of humanity. This is from a theology book, so it's okay that it has that word. But is rather saved in order to be truly for Humanity. The church is the community that lives ahead of time. What that means is we live knowing that things are united in Christ. So what do we pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And I trust that it is, that it will be. Salvation is not so much Here's the most controversial quote, again from a book, so anyway. Salvation is not so much a commentary on who decides for Christ. I gave my life to Jesus. As it is a celebration of those for whom Christ has decided. Now you tell me who Christ has decided against. No one. Am I saying everyone's in? I'm not making a statement on in and out. What I'm making a statement on is the universal love of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what must guide us as we look to what's coming next for how we speak to family and friends. People sometimes feel that we're talking about this faith in a threatening way when we're not even. In this commentary I was reading this week, it talked about and mentioned that salvation, here's a way to help you. You have to think of salvation not as a place or a state, right? You know, we're, one day we're going to be in this place. What salvation is in Scripture is with Godness. You are completely and fully with God. Now, how does that happen? That happens by the work of Jesus Christ. I trust in that, and then I know the fullness of what that means. There's a lot of other stuff I don't understand, and I'm getting way more uh, comfortable with saying I don't understand. Actually, there's a little shift too that I'm getting a little more upset at people who say they do and then carry this model that just seems like bad news, not good news. I don't understand, but I know Scripture says this, that in the end, salvation is with Godness. We just sang about it in Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. What is heaven like? I don't know. What is salvation like? Fullness of life in Christ. In God. Hidden with Christ. In the commentary I was reading, this is just a little Plymouth Brethren note for those who grew up in this church. For some reason, in the Plymouth Brethren, that's the history of this church, Plymouth Brethren, in the background, uh, and I owe a great, great deal to that. So I'm not, this isn't to hack, but it's to say an interesting comment, that The the commentator, for some reason in brackets, noted and said, this idea of God's love for all counters some theological principles that we've looked at through history, including those of the Plymouth Brethren and John Nelson Darby. Anyway, it was interesting. In other words, what he's saying is, this is not the way that some have understood. So, we have to ask ourselves, where's the vision here? I... I've got to say, I'm not, I hope you would know, I'm not done on this. I'm not saying you have to believe this way rather than this way. I'm not looking to throw any concept out, not one. I am aware that I'm asking myself and you to make a bit of a shift, to ask different questions. So instead, I'm, I'm sick of this, by the way, too. I know you must be. Like, it's not who's in, who's out. Yeah, we know that by now. But instead of asking, what does that mean, that some are saved, so therefore some are damned, and how does that all work? Maybe ask, what does it mean when Scripture says, not taught, when Scripture says, all things will be united in him? doesn't mean you throw out the other questions. It just means you ask the bigger one first. We can work together on this. In the meantime, in the meantime, we go back to that word eschaton. Oh, it was there. Very quickly. Watch how quick it goes by. Eschaton. Um, here's the truth. And it's what people are living with as a burden. If the eschaton of your life, the completion is you it's the worst burden you can ever imagine (laughs) because no matter how well you succeed in this life or how much you fail in the measures of this world you're faced with this existential struggle your very existence existential is this it because if this is it and you're doing well in the eyes of the world and then you have the mind and spirit to ask this is it oh i feel so hopeless then (laughs) Or you can feel hopeless if you haven't made it by the measures of this world. Christian faith says you are not the eschaton. Now please hear this. I'm not making an eternal, you know, your eternal well-being statement. But I'm saying when you go bigger, higher, like from you and your life and your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ, who I think you would agree is higher and bigger than you. Even... Your salvation, your personal, individual salvation is not the eschaton. So, Lord Jesus Christ, what does it mean that I can put my faith in you, that you save me from my sins, but you call me somehow in my least of these, my weakness? You call me to live out this love so that others would see. I long for that. In many ways, Lord, I have not done that well and it's my heartache. But I will declare from here only that which I know and feel to be true. And that is that this faith is hopeful. Hopeful even for those right now who don't see it. Come Holy Spirit, redeem my words And where I am wrong in what I say. Show me and us, Lord God, how to ask the questions of those difficult things. Heaven and hell. Goodness and badness. Your judgment. But help us to see in the end that your judgment is on the cross. And help us to see that Jesus Christ is the end of all things. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is not merely a means to an end. He is the end itself. And you can know him. You can know Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You simply say, Dear God, let me know Jesus Christ. You will get to repentance of sin. All of those things. Dear God, let me know what it means to give my life to Jesus Christ, my Lord, the only one who would ever be worthy of being called Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and guide us in this. Show us a new day as a church, how to speak this faith in this world so that others would see And then in my notes, and for those who've been around Sutherland for a number of years, you can picture it right now. Can you picture the old building? The old building doesn't seem like such a bad building now, does it? (laughs) Remember that old sanctuary? The wooden slots? I've said this before from the front. And those words calling us back that in all things he might have the preeminence. I'm Holy Spirit.
3: We have two songs to end our service with today. Um, the first I would ask if you would just listen to and though I've got the lyrics put up so that you don't have to worry about my enunciation. Um, but I'm just hoping that you can kind of soak it in. Um, it's a song that, that Bart's done several times wonderfully talking about just the depth of of God's love for us. And then we'll have one song to sing together after that. <clears throat> Can't be but of soul or fate That kind of love It always gives itself away That kind of love Wiser than wiser sage Its innocence makes me ashamed Till I'm not sure that I can take that kind of love. Breads its charm and it casts its spell To no one save the sight of hell From that kind of love Love rejected and ignored Held in chains behind closed doors of legend and of song and deep down everybody longs for that kind of love Oh, that kind of love Some people never know That kind Child to show That kind of love With a smile and strong when weep Little ones play at its feet Oh, the deaf can hear and the blind can see That kind of love Love triumphant, love on fire. Love that humbles and inspires. Love that does not hesitate. With no conditions, no restraints. That kind of love. Oh, that kind of love. That kind of love, knowing every heart is measured by, that kind of love, even stars fall from the sky, everything will fall in time, except those things that cannot die. That kind of love, oh, maybe. is gracious and compassionate, slow to anchor and rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love.